I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today's guests are both from Oakland's Root and Rebound Reentry Advocates. Catherine Catcher is the founder and executive director, and Carmen Garcia is the deputy director of operations. Catherine and Carmen, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yep. So Catherine and Carmen, if we could start out maybe just hearing from each of you, if you could uh, briefly introduce yourselves and tell us about your roles at Root and Rebound. Sure. So I'm Catherine Catcher. I'm the founder and executive director here. I'm also an attorney. Um, and, you know, I started the organization about seven years ago, almost seven years ago, uh, straight out of law school, when I recognized that we were, I hopingly, uh, coming out of a sort of huge period, 40, long, 40 year long period of mass incarceration. Um, and that there were changes happening at the policy level, but the numbers were kind of astonishing that one in three Americans has some form of criminal record. There are 48,000 uh, collateral consequences or legal barriers that people face because of a conviction across the country. And the people that are in the system uh, are disproportionately low income, disproportionately people of color and black people, native people, Latinx people. And so understanding the layers of discrimination, marginalization, and stigma that people face when they come out, knowing that you know, 95% of people behind bars are gonna be released, and it's kind of like released into what? And, and what can lawyers do? Um, because our government, our systems are certainly setting people up to fail. Um, and so that's really the, ans the question that I had, and the answer has been a lot in developing this model and being an entrepreneur and kind of starting up with the question. And, figuring out the model over time. The model that we've developed is a three-pronged model of providing power and resources to communities that have been most harmed by mass incarceration through direct legal services, public education, know your rights work, and policy advocacy and impact litigation. So we do a breadth of work. Today we are actually statewide in, in California and South Carolina where we launched our second sister site last year um, and we have national education programs and some federal policy work that we're working on as well. Hi, I'm Carmen Garcia and I'm the Deputy Director of Operations at Root and Rebound. I'm going on my sixth year at Root and Rebound uh, and loving every minute. Um, I, I support Catherine on the back end of, you know, of the work that we do, operations-wise, uh, budgets, finance, all that, um, the, the work that is rarely seen uh, by others, but it's a huge part of what keeps the organization going. And so I'm just very grateful to be on that part, you know, doing my, doing my part uh, in helping people um, and then just by supporting Catherine and Root and Rebound in that role, so. Thank you for, for that, both Catherine and Carmen. Uh, Catherine, you told us a, a little bit about the founding story of, of Root and Rebound. Can you elaborate a, a little bit on exactly how the organization works to help individuals and communities harmed by mass incarceration? Sure. Well, I think 
what's important about our model, and I, I sort of explained that three-pronged model, direct legal services, public education, know your rights work, and then systems change, policy, advocacy, and um, litigation. And we are a team today, about 30 people, um, about 20 of us, I'd say 15 to 20, it's, it's hard to know, our attorneys or you know, JD graduates. Um, and then we have a lot of support, uh, support staff that help make the work possible. And you know, the, the, the model I think is really looking at both the root causes of these issues and trying to change things at a system and policy-wide level, because we know that we can't just be putting out the fire. We need to look at where the fire is coming from. And I think a lot of reentry organizations or, organi or legal services organizations, nonprofits generally, stop there. They really focus on ending human suffering and supporting people and families, which is so, so critical. And I don't want to um, understate that because we run a lot of direct services programs that I'm very, very proud of that help people get back on their feet, get an ID, um, reduce fines and fees, reduce child support that's, you know, where the, all of their wages are getting garnished and they literally can't function, um, helping people navigate housing discrimination. So there's a lot of work we're doing statewide in California and South Carolina that's very like deep, deep work. Um, we have five sites in California. We work in the tribal communities to the north, the Bay Area, the Central Valley, San Bernardino, um, and that area all around it. And, um, and, then this, and then Los Angeles, and then in South Carolina statewide. So we're running kind of deep programs. Some programs are focused more on women and, and people who are gender nonconforming. Some programs are focused more on lifers, um, people who've served long-term sentences. It's um, really, fairly deep work. But what I'm really proud of is that we do that deep advocacy work. And then we also look at what needs to change at the systems level or the public education level, public imagination about these issues. What training, what's, what do employers need? Do landlords need to make better decisions to incorporate people with records more into our society? Um, at the systems level, we've worked at reforming occupational licensing laws that can prevent people from getting you know, any kind of certification that they need to actually have a meaningful and a, and a living wage job. Um, we're looking at higher education. We're looking at um, employment and ban the box and then enforcement of ban the box uh, it, through litigation. And um, family law, we're looking at ways that people with records are prevented from um, you know, reunifying with their children. Uh, and um, I think the, the critical thing to remember is at a systems level, this, this criminal justice system was built um, out of all of, you know, in the founding of this country, out of all of the problematic um, parts of our founding, the fact that we um, came over to this country or Europeans came over to this country and colonized and um, there was a mass genocide of Native Americans, the fact, and I guess I try to use the word fact because I don't think these are political facts, they're just facts, the facts that this country was founded in an, econo an economy that depended on slavery and then when that was found to be unlawful, we transitioned into um, a system of Jim Crow and segregation and a criminal justice system that held that up and perpetuated it. And then the war on drugs, which was a backlash to the civil rights movement. So when I say we need to think about the root causes, it's very connected to what's coming up in the world today. Our system, our criminal legal system was founded on the same principles of white supremacy, anti-blackness, um, colonization, and propped those systems up. And so we really need to be thinking about how we both end human suffering today, but also think about tearing down some of that ingrained kind of, well, this is just how it works 
um, because all of these things were actually man-made choices. I think that's such an important point, Catherine. And when, when we talk about the, the current climate, it feels like so much of the outrage is around these systemic issues, these issues, as, as you pointed out, that are, are baked into the, the system and a structural component of the system working against certain populations in a, in, in a very unequal way. Can, can you talk about the, um, maybe a few specific examples of how you've been worked with certain populations and, and dealt with individuals and, and what some of your findings on that front have done to help inform some of the change you're trying to drive at a systems level? How do you, how do you ladder up the individual cases and some of the patterns you're seeing and help create a strategy for what systems level changes you might attempt to uh, realize? Sure, and you know, I'd love to get Carmen's take also on individual cases or people that have really changed her perception or experiences she's had that changed her perception because we were all brought up in a society, all of us, where media, TV, law and order was like good people, bad people, right? Like, right. And, 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 I, and I have two children now and I'm really trying to raise them differently. I say, there's no bad people. There's people who make bad decisions, right? And I'm one of them. You know, like I've made a lot of bad decisions and I make bad decisions and mistakes every day. And I think uh, I don't, I, that sounds really kind of, it might sound tangential, but I think it's actually really connected when we think about our criminal justice system is to really understand that as children, we're fed this narrative that like we are good because you know we in our community um, that is you know not necessarily uh, quote unquote thought of as criminal and then there's these criminals that are like in these invisible places and they've done terrible things and the reality is like obviously just it's an alternate reality it's a completely all so I think like right. you know, doing this work and being in this space it's been just like a mass unlearning of like what I was fed. Um, and it's so, it's so hard to unpack, especially, you know, on a short podcast, I don't want to overwhelm you or your listeners, but I think what's so critical is I'll just start with like whiteness. Like I grew up in a community that, um, where if I made a mistake, um, and my peers made mistakes or even, and, and, and mistakes that were even criminal, no one ever thought about them as that they were just thought of as mistakes. And that includes like underage drinking, smoking weed, um, I know a lot of kids who drove with without a license or an expired license or, you know, and there were no police. I mean, there were no police in my neighborhood. It was never even a thought. It was, um, you know, I grew up in Miami, Florida. And what I didn't realize, because I was 15 years old, is that there were other communities where um, young people were doing the same things. And there was hundreds of police on the street every day. And, and I think, um, I think that's just, something that was really mind-blowing when I realized it, that like who's behind bars isn't necessarily, isn't probative of guilt or like bad. <laughs> there's no such thing as bad and good. There's, there's, the system is, is, is really, um, has, has developed out of this notion of criminality, this notion of who we right. favor, which is a lot of what we're seeing on the streets today. Um, you know, one statistic that really I think is important and, and that tells a lot about what our, what our criminal justice system does and some of the systems level change that's needed is that 90% of people who are incarcerated are there because they pled, not because they went to trial and were then, um, and had a full trial and then were convicted. Right. And I mean, you know, you work in the legal community, right? Like what that means is 
those are people who are languishing in a jail because they can't pay bail. So even the fact that we have a notion in this country that in order to be free to um, fight your case, it isn't about what you've done. It's about can you afford to pay this? If you can afford yeah. to pay this and you can afford for a huge defense team, you, like Harvey Weinstein, are going to sit in your New York penthouse and fight charges for two years with the best legal team around you where you have people of color and low-income people that have charges that are one one hundredth as a serious and are getting and are and are and are away from their children are, are in jails that were never meant to hold people long term and they're getting sick they're getting terrible medical care they're crowded and they're with an attorney they don't have a private attorney they're with an attorney that has 300 or 400 people on their caseload Public defenders do their best, but the system, again, just that's what it looks like. And the, the attorney's like, you know, these are, if you, you want to wait six months and then go to jail and, and you might, you might have, you might be there for, you know, 10 more years or we can plead to something. And so to me, that is actually like a coercive system, a system that Absolutely. coerces people into pleading. And so that, I mean, there's so many reforms that you could point to just in looking at that specific statistic around reforming bail and getting rid of bail as a concept like even that like there should be other ways that we designate who can't leave incarceration but if it's money alone then that's not that is not a system of liberty right or like the public defense system um the way that we treat like minor crimes we had a we had a 17 year old in south carolina who was on probation who smoked marijuana in the middle of the coronavirus at his home with his mother and was taken and put in jail right like this is a kid he's a kid and he's now at risk of getting really sick and he has pre-existing conditions. Like, why do we even charge that? Why is that a crime? So um, there's so many things that I think that points to, um, those kind of statistics point to about like reform and the pretrial. And I think it's really important at the pretrial level. And I think it's important that when we talk about the back end and like supporting people's records and reentry and all that, I don't actually see us as only doing reentry. I see that as us as being under the umbrella of criminal justice reform. And so in this moment, we're trying to think about bail reform, police reform, um, public defense reform, et cetera. And I don't know, Carmen, if you would answer that question differently. Um, no, no, I actually just wanted to touch on like something that we do at Root and Rebound, which is the holistic approach and just understanding like where people come from or, or what, what in their lives led them to where they are today, right? It's not just that the person woke up one day and said, oh, today I'm gonna commit a crime or today I'm gonna become a criminal. Like, that's not the case. Um, I think for me, just touching on what Catherine said, like, it's so important, like, to know your rights. Like, a lot of people, for example, myself, uh, when I was in prison, I had no idea what reentry was. I know what reentry means, but in the coming, you know, outside and, and, and coming home from, uh, after being in prison, I didn't really connect like what reentry really meant. And so uh, finishing, um, I was in prison and in jail for three years, federal prison, and coming out without any kind of guidance or any kind of like uh, preparedness kit or anything like that, just here, you have to figure it out on your own was really challenging, right? And so I think it goes to what Catherine was talking about, how um, all this that we have in place perpetuates people just going back to prison like we said we're set up to fail from the get-go you do three yeah. years you come out there's nothing for you you co commit another you go back like that's just the cycle and to keep that cycle going right but i i think um just just um to touch on like the one thing that i think is so important is that people coming home from prison should know your, their rights should have some type some type of like preparation while they're inside before coming out 
right? If, if you're to succeed or even to have a fighting chance, you should have at least some type of toolkit, some type of, you know, guidance to make sure that, right, that what you're doing is the right, and you're preparing yourself to just make better choices. And like Catherine just said, there are no good or bad people. It's the choices that you make, right, that are either good or bad. And so people that are, that they made bad choices and that's all they know. And it goes to, you know, growing up in the, in the neighborhoods that you grew up in, you know, poverty and um, um, just police, over-policing, right? Like the yeah. communities. And like Catherine said, the, the fact that people are out there thinking, oh, I'm better than you because I didn't go to prison is, is ridiculous to me because a lot of people that I know, they just, they did commit worse crimes. They just never got caught, right? right. I went to prison, you did, but you committed something even worse. And you didn't go to prison. That doesn't make you any better than me or a nice or, or got caught and had a an equal standard applied to them. Exactly. Exactly. And so that to me is like, oh my God. But that's the reality. Like that's the reality that we're in, right? And it's just trying to find ways to support people in this reality, right? And knowing your rights, I think is so important. And just kind of give you a little bit of but how how Root and Rebound helped me um, when I was um, on probation. Um, I had to pay, even though I didn't have a full-time job, I had just, you know, I was a teacher's assistant at a community college through work study, and I was earning about $600 a month. And my restitution was four, almost $400 a month, right? That's almost everything that I was earning. And so my probation officer said, if you don't pay that, you're going to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. You don't make your monthly payment. And I was like, so like, it, it, it was just everything like, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm going to go back to prison. Uh, but luckily I had just started Root and Rebound and we were working on the Roadmap to Reentry Guide. And it was a section, right? And, and that I was kind of like proofing and reading just because Catherine always likes to get people feedback on, yeah. on anything that's going to be published. And so I brought up my issue and she was like, no, that's not, that's not right. Blah, blah, blah. And so right away found, you know, the information that I needed and also had uh, the deputy director at that time help me out with, you know, um, how I can, you know, what my rights were like at that time to get my, my, uh, my restitution reduced, which was something that my probation officer never mentioned. She never mm-hmm. said, oh, you have this option. No. When I contacted and went back to my probation officer with like, hey, I'm going to do this. And I know that I can file this to reduce my probation or my restitution. She was like caught off guard. Like, how did you find out? How did you figure that out? I never mentioned that. But she had to because I brought it up to her. And sure enough, the, the judge reduced my restitution. Which did, was did your, do you believe your probation officer knew about this and just wasn't telling you about it? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. She, 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 so they already had an issue. I, I say they like probation and even at the halfway house, they had an issue that I wanted to go to school and continue my education. And I guess they felt like I shouldn't be focusing on that because of my criminal record. Actually at the halfway house, I was told that you have a criminal mm-hmm. record, so don't waste your time going to school. That's wow. not going to help you. Right. And so I think that with them, it was more like, um, we need you to get a full-time job because you have this debt to pay, right? Forget about school. And I thought inside of me, I was like, but I want to make better choices. I want to have an opportunity. I want what I've always wanted to have, you know, just the education was so important. And so um, I fought through that and and eventually did finish school. Uh, But it was just that, that idea of like, no, I'm not going to give her an out. Right. I'm going to pressure her, pressure her and let her know, like, you know, just that pressure. And so after I did that, and when she found out that I was working at Root and Rebound with with attorneys, everything changed like before that she was calling me all the time to come into her office 
show up at my house. Even though she, she knew I had classes, she would schedule like just visits when I'm supposed to be in class. So I couldn't go to school because I had to be waiting at home for her to come. And sometimes it would take the whole day for her to show up. But after, you know, when she found out, I was like, but things change. Like I no longer had those visits. I had, she was very like, oh, you know, my visits were like maybe once every three months as opposed to, you know, and I was like, wait, what? All of a sudden, you know, of course I, I didn't complain, but I just found it very odd that now that I knew my rights and I knew what I was doing, she also had to acknowledge that and be more careful. And so, and, and so that's why I think it's so crucial that people coming home from jails and prison know their rights, right? Know that not everything has to be like, uh, you, you don't have to be in that situation where you think, okay, you know what? You get a case of the buckets and say, you know, I, I'm trying to do good and I can't, right? I have no, you know, I have no other choice but to go back to do what I was doing. Because, yeah, you know, probation- it feels like in so many ways the the default path is right back to, to prison and it's this, this self-perpetuating system we you know we had lensley leslie ginzel on the show a couple of weeks ago and she's talking about the work she's doing in texas and it's amazing how what we might perceive as tiny barriers end up being these these mountains to climb whether it's something as simple as getting a name change done or getting a criminal record sealed or getting a driver's license uh, despite the fact that you might have an accumulation of parking tickets as trivial as that sounds that's what stands between some people and a path to, you know, a good life and a, a good person. And instead it feels uh, like they're condemned to, to perpetuating in this, this system. And I, I think so much of the thinking, one of the points you made, Catherine, I think is very important. And, you know, we had Brian Stevenson speak at the Clio Cloud Conference uh, in 2018. And one of the statements he made that really resonated with me is asking the question, should we have a criminal justice system that defines people for life by whatever their worst action may have been at some point in their life. And that it feels like so much of the default answer for the way our current justice system works is the answer to that question is yes, you are defined by Mm -hmm. the worst thing you may have ever done. And, and obviously the, the work your organization is doing is, is so important. You know, I'm curious seeing what you've seen on the ground and, and Carmen, your story is obviously a, a firsthand and, and really powerful one on, on what a different path can look like and how if we accommodate, uh, if we create a path to a new reality, there are people that can make that transition. Uh, it, it's possible. What are, what are some of the learnings that you've had on the ground that you might think would surprise people or change their perceptions around criminal justice reform and, and, and what you've seen on the ground? Well, I think, I know, just the what we've been talking about a lot, right, which is like, when you have good choices, when, you're, when your spectrum is, you have, you can make really great choices or uh-uh choices, that's kind of how I was set up in life. Even when I was making bad choices, they were still in the spectrum of good options. And there's a right. lot of people in this world who don't grow up with good options. And so I think it's really fundamental what we're talking about in terms of human psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like what people need to survive, that when we give people opportunity and that the criminal justice system isn't disconnected from investing in our education system, investing in affordable housing, 
ensuring that um, employers are, are hiring from underemployed communities and making sure that there's diversity in the workplace, that actually the criminal justice system is, and the way that people are treated is, is the kind of the culmination of all of these other systems not functioning for people. And so on the ground, what I see is that our work for the first time is giving a lot of men and women a little bit of that opportunity. We can't change the world. I wish we could. I wish we could ensure affordable housing, clean, clean air, uh, water, food for all families. And we try to do a lot of that. We have cash assistance funds. We were advocating for the DMV in California, which shut down for three months and wasn't giving anyone an ID when people were getting out of prison, anyone in the, anyone in the state. Um, yeah. We advocate for all these things to be in place. And when we do little things for people like um, helping them understand their employment rights and write a resume and figure out how to talk about themselves and talk about mitigating factors and what happened to them and the choices they made and how they've changed. When we help people understand um, who in their community is providing transitional housing, like things do change. That what I would say is it's holistic, like Carmen said, it's a systems wide approach. But, you know, we had one woman who got kicked out of school after a year and a half and $150,000 of debt um, in graduate nursing school because the school pulled her record a year and a half later. We were able to fight for her to get back in her school. She graduated with a, with a license and she's going to go on to become a nurse. And like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the legal advocacy does work. The sort of social services resource provision does work. And we need to fight for like the system as a whole to change. Like Brian Stevenson does all these amazing people that think about what the setup is um, but I will say that like when we fight hard and we go deep and we provide support for people we do change people's lives absolutely and let's shift our discussion to mass incarceration some of the impacts mass incarcerate incarceration has had what, what are some of the impacts you've seen in particular on low-income communities and communities of color well, you know, there are entire neighborhoods where like the young men of color, the black men are missing, right? Like there's, there's just, um, there's a huge number of, um, of people that the system has just taken. And as you said, when people go into prison, um, they, it starts a whole um, domino effect in their lives. So it doesn't just impact them, it impacts their children, right? Children who grow up with incarcerated parents are far more likely to end up in the system themselves. And I will say like when a person goes to prison, it's not just them that, that is impacted and goes to prison, right? In many ways, it's right. their parents, it's their, it's their spouses, it's their children. And, you know, I think uh, there are so many other alternatives. There are models of restorative justice and like community service and ways that people could be kept in the community and kept safe. And again, we, what we use is like all these systems haven't worked and then our, our thing is like lock you up and throw away the key. And so, you know, mass incarceration has really devastated low-income communities and communities of color because you go into these communities and sometimes 85% of the people in the community where people of color will have a record. And that means that when they apply to jobs, there's a no. When they apply to housing, there's a no. And we can change this stuff over time, right? We've passed beyond the box in, in California uh, for private and public, uh, private and public employers you can run a background check, but you actually have to interview the person, get to know them first. Like, hey, Jack, like, want to learn about you? Tell me about yourself. And I get to know you in an interview. And then if, if I want to, Root and Rebound doesn't pull background checks, but if a company wants to, they can pull it. 
and and they've already gotten to know you know Jack and they know they like him and they say hey Jack can you explain a little bit about this I ran your background and like I'm founding this can you talk about this and they have to actually um, do what what we call an individualized assessment of a person and so that kind of waiting to run a background check and when you do run it asking people questions like and looking at how long has it been has it been 25 years or was this a month ago how <laughs> severe was the crime what's the connection between the crime is there any connection between the crime and the work um, so for example, you know, if, if someone's applying to work at Clio as an engineer and 15 years ago, they were selling marijuana and they can say to you like, yeah, you know, I was trying to make money. I was trying to survive. I grew up in a low income household. Like this is how I was taught to survive. Like that's a conversation that you or your hiring manager can have with that person. Um, and that again, sort of the word is individualized assessment rather than blanket bans. So what I would say is while the impact has been devastating, the opportunity um, for employers and landlords and um, you know the system at large to to understand that part of part of impacting kids is supporting parents. Part of like us helping the next generation is helping to support um, low income people and people of color. When you do see a felony or you see a misdemeanor on someone's application, not just assuming that that's probative that that's a terrible person or an untrustworthy person actually having that conversation. And so much of employer policies, currently at least, are, are really binary. If right. you have a criminal record, you're exactly out of consideration, even if it was a, a minor offense 20 years ago, even yep. if it bears no relation uh, to, to what your job duties might be or, or the risk uh, that might exist in a current a current in a specific role and it, it does feel like the, the the default of so many ways that our, our system works from you know employment on down uh is is really a, a bit of a a condemned for life kind of approach right. even for for minor offenses and yeah and you're absolutely right and it's it's based on misconception because don't get me wrong i mean i run a nonprofit. i totally understand mitigating risk and liability and you know i'm a lawyer i get it but there's a misconception about what the risks are. If you're, if you're watching Law and & Order, and that's your, your sole understanding of criminal justice system, and you see that, you think, oh my gosh, enormous risk, felony, misdemeanor. But if you truly understand what those things mean, you're gonna have a different response. And so employer education is really important. And frankly, the studies that, we've, that we have been done on this population, the workplace, have actually told us otherwise. So there was a great study done not that long ago um, by a woman named Deborah Pager. And she looked at the army because there was a shortage of workers, of, of, um, of employees, had to, um, they have a, typically they have a ban on all felonies and they actually waived that ban for a period of time. And so all of the people that had felonies that entered the army were studied. Those people performed just as well as their peers and in fact got more promotions than, um, than people without felonies. And so if this was studied more and people could make decisions based in reality, as opposed to uh, Hollywood notions of criminality, um, we would be in a much, much better place. And frankly, I'll say the last thing is, actually employers bring on, and this is since I know some of your audience is lawyers, there's liability in having a felony ban. There's huge liability in having a ban on felons. In a state like California, it is not permitted at all, obviously, but in other states, if you say no felons need apply under the EEOC, that is extremely problematic because of the disproportionate impact that this, um, that mass incarceration has had on people of color, you, uh, criminal records are essentially a proxy for race, unfortunately. And so you can't ban people from working at your company based on race. So if you say no felons need apply, you are therefore basically blocking black men 
um, women of color, right? And and those um, those arguments have been brought both in the housing and the um, employment space under Title VII discrimination at federal level. So actually, there's there is more much more liability in just having blanket bans than there is in um, having an individualized assessment. And um, you know, I don't know if you send out information to your guests, but the EEOC guidance is really strong on this. There's, we've done a fair chance hiring toolkit that employers can read all about what, um, again, we're not saying you have to hire everyone with any kind of background or record, and, and, but it's just really understanding what the law does um, and what federal protections do, do provide. And I'm happy to share that with your audience. That, that's great. And we'll make sure that links to those resources are available in the, the show notes. Appreciate that, Catherine. Um, you, you, we've talked a lot of, over the course of our conversation about the uh, lack of access to justice for people of color and, and obviously against the backdrop of uh, the last few weeks. The, that's in stark relief, especially with the Black community. Um, can you talk about some of the ways that we might think about at a systems level of improving access to justice for these specific communities? And if there's lessons that you've learned at Root and Rebound that you, you think we should be applying holistically to the, the justice system? Sure. Well, I mean, I definitely, you know, as a white person, I am constantly like learning and really unlearning. Um, and I think that it's important to approach these conversations with a lot of humility. I'd be also very interested in what Carmen has to say about kind of systems-wide reform. But I do think that it's recognizing our legal system and all the laws that are in place are man-made. Um, and so changing our perceptions of criminality, changing our perceptions around race is really critical for our profession, for lawyers, for judges, um, for policymakers. And so making sure that there's people at the table whenever policies are being created at the local and statewide level, whether it's like a lot of communities now or kind of what does it look like to defund the police and put that money into um, public health public health needs that a community has. I would say having people of color, having low-income people at the table is a much more certain way to ensure that the policies that are developed are actually anti-racist, are actually more just, are actually bringing about more equity and equality in the community. And so I think really questioning ourselves, even for me as an expert, right, as someone who went to law school, I can be like, well, what is my expertise in and what is it not in? How do I bring people to the table who are directly impacted? Um, but I do believe that, like, the, obviously the conversations around mass incarceration and criminal justice are so deeply connected to police conduct because we know that, you know, it's these, the things that are happening on the streets, as my the Black community says, because I don't want to speak for people, but just... I've been humbled to understand from black people, like this isn't anything new. The police brutality, even in response to the protesters isn't anything new. It might be new for you and what you're seeing, but I grew up with this. I think that's very humbling to remember that the people who are inside our prisons and jails are also people who are probably, many of them harmed by the police in the encounters that they had. And that people right. like me, I was talking today in a group that we started at Root and Rebound, our white allyship circle, where people were talking about how Sorry, I got a new puppy and she's screaming. Um, no but you know, um, how like those of us that are locked out of our car and locked out of our home and call the police, a guy shows up and sees a white woman and is like, here you go, I'll help you open the car. And you're like, but you, don't, you haven't even seen my ID. And then you have Henry Louis Gates, who was a professor at Harvard, who was actually just trying to get into his own home and the police were called and he was arrested. This is like a preeminent prestigious professor. And so I think 
I guess what I'm saying is like racism and the criminal justice system are so intertwined because we are humans. It's the same argument for why we shouldn't have a death penalty. It's like, because we are so, our own minds are so problematic. There's so much prejudice and bias. Can we actually trust ourselves to carry out a system? And, and to me, the answer isn't having like white arbiters of justice carrying out a system. It's actually, like I said, bringing these things to the community level and having like the people living in a community in Baltimore, in DC, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, like developing, like what does justice look like for you? How do we get closer to that? So the points that I feel most positive about is when you see like local commissions developing um, from people who are living in the neighborhoods kind of deciding what that looks like because we don't really have a great answer to what is the alternative to policing as we know it and we really need to have a better you know answer those are not easy like those are not easy questions and there shouldn't be a quick a quick solution but i think what i've realized is like people who've been most impacted are the ones who've been thinking about this the longest have um, felt that oppression and are the people to really be talking to and i don't know carmen what you would add um yeah i think i would add something along the lines of like stop having incar using incarceration as a for-profit business like for-profit mm. i think contributes to a lot of why you know there's so much incentive to keep people locked up right to continue yeah if that's your fight. business model yeah that's problematic on so many levels right so that that right there alone like you need to stop like for prison uh for-profit prisons all that needs to stop if you want to make true change and give people the opportunity there's something Catherine mentions all the time um, about like the community we serve and, and myself included, she says, you know, uh, for the most part, most people were giving them their first chance. Like in, in her opinion, people never even had a first chance. So not about giving second chances or third chances. A lot of people, this is their first chance, right? Given the poverty, given everything, uh, the circumstances, everything that they grew up and they never really had true opportunity to a real, you know, um, yeah, just to, to, to make better choices. So, um, but that's, yeah, I think that's always a good thing to always keep in mind for me is that, yeah, most of us never really had a chance and like we never even had a first chance. And so just knowing that there's, you know, organizations and, and systems in place already that are allowing us to have those second chances and some, yeah, third, fourth chances, but, you know, just, just making sure that we at least have a fighting chance. So. Carmen, you must feel lucky almost that by chance you you fell into this opportunity to get on a different path and you discovered that you were able to you know have some of the financial hardship that was being placed on you uh minimized and and you could get to this entirely new path and you, I'm, I'm sure it must keep you awake at night at times thinking about the the majority of the incarcerated that do not ever have that opportunity how, how do you think about making the kind of experience that you had more pervasive? It feels like something that should be a, a table stakes right for anyone leaving prison is here's a path that can put you on a road to becoming a contributing member of society um, and not uh, put you in, in, in the default position of being a boomerang heading back to, to prison over the course of uh, a few weeks or months. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for that, Derek. Um, so first of all, I have to say, I mean, we would have to have like a million Catherines in the world to have, I feel very lucky. Like I really do feel very lucky. And so I also understand that it, like you said, it doesn't happen to everyone coming out. Not everyone is as lucky as me. And so I, I feel like I, um, I use that when I interact with people calling us and just looking for that 
assistance and, and, and just any way that I can support them because I know that not everybody has the same opportunity or has had the same opportunities that I'm having now that I had, you know, six years ago, starting six years ago uh, at Root and Rebound. And so to have that like on my side now, it, it, it's, it, it's given me, It's given me the opportunity no to actually live a life that I always dreamed of, right? I'm, I'm here and I'm like, oh my God, how did I get here? It's so amazing that I had this great, that this great opportunity to be, able, to be able to be here to contribute, right? To help out. Like I always feel like I have to get out of myself and help someone else. And right. help them also bring them along because I got, someone helped me. And I have to pay it for, and it's, you know, yeah. that's how I see things, right? Because not everything is, is easily afforded. And, and so I had a taste of that right at the beginning. But like I said, I was just the lucky one that, you know, came across Root and Rebound and, um, and, and, and just making sure that I use that, that, that information or that experience and also the knowledge that I've gained throughout the years and, and, and supporting other people and, and also keeping, just being very clear that this is not real for a lot of people, right? And, and, and so, and, but it is real for me and I have to embrace that too. And um, yeah, so, so yeah, thanks. For thanks that. for that, Carmen. And Catherine, Carmen, as, as a, a parting thought or maybe a parting call to action, I'm wondering if you could both uh, speak to how individual lawyers, you know, much of our, our audience are practicing lawyers that, or listening to this and probably wondering what impact can they have? How can they help? Um, how can they have an impact at an individual level? Uh, and maybe starting with you, Catherine, if you could give us a, a perspective on on that question. Yeah, sure. I mean, when you were when you were asking that question, Jack, of like to Carmen, you know, what what does it look like to make this a reality for more people, for all people? you know, I mean, I, of course, that's the mission behind the work. Like the mission behind the work is that Carmen is not the exception to the rule. She's the rule. Right. There's millions of people with opportunity, promise, brilliance behind prison walls or just living with a record and that, and that we need to um, think about what, what systems we all are responsible for or benefit from that harmed them. And so I think that there's like both an individual and obviously a, a big collective responsibility, but Root and Rebound is all about trying to create those opportunities, employment, housing, a family reunification, the ability to be with a parent and be with your children that can all get taken away. And so um, through everyone who calls us, the, the questions are, you know, we have a 11 pronged kind of assessment that we do about all the areas of life where people are facing barriers. And it's like, what are the barriers you're facing and how do we support you, whether we're providing education or actually representing you in court, how do we support you to navigate these barriers? And so for us as an organization, we're always looking for volunteers, especially legal volunteers, lawyers um, that are interested in either policy or litigation or, um, you know, just kind of direct services, helping us, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one with clients um, and education work, research, writing, et cetera. And if it's not us, look at your backyard, look at the community, look at the groups in your community. There's always a criminal justice reform. There's often a criminal justice reform or reentry legal organization in a state, in your, in your city. And there's so many ways to bring, I mean, lawyers certainly have a role to play. If this legal system is what has harmed so many people and the incentives 
are there and we continue to pay you know $75,000 a year to incarcerate people, but then we give them $200 and a bus ticket to get out, we need to change that on a policy level so that we're spending $50,000 a year to incarcerate someone and $25,000 towards their reintegration and their rent and their food for the first three months, right? So we need to push for the policies we want to see, but day to day, it's unfortunately, it's the individuals and smaller organizations like ours at this time that are going to be pushing that kind of justice forward. So we need people to step up and volunteer, donate, support, whether it's to us or to organizations in your own backyard. Thank you. And Carmen, would love to hear from you. Yeah, no, I think um, attorneys play a huge role in a client's life. I think having the attorney that gives two shits about you, excuse my language, yeah. is so important because yeah. that will determine a lot of what you do and what, where you go from there. If you have, um, for instance, my experience with some attorneys, um, especially public defenders, right? They have so, such a huge caseload that they really spend two, three minutes with you. And yeah. that's it. Right. And so, yeah. but what, so coming out of prison and, and, and supporting the people that call us, what they get is actually attorneys that do spend time with them on the phone and do want to hear about their stories and, you know, and how can we can support, but before we can help you, we need to know where you've been and how, you know, how you got here and how, you know, maybe there are other things that we can support you with. And so um, in the past years, I know, like, for example, Catherine, um, which is why she doesn't, um, we don't want her working the hotline all the time because Catherine will help everyone, like uh, answering the phone. She answers the phone and talks to the person. First of all, like they're a human being. Like that's something, you know, I, in my past that I'd never experienced with an attorney unless I was paying the attorney, which I never had the money to, but paid attorneys usually treat you different. So the one thing here, a free legal service and you have an attorney that actually gives a shit about you and is wanting to hear you out and, and does whatever she can to help, you know, make sure that she gets the support and, 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 and the resources that you need or whatever it is that you're calling about. Like that to me, and I saw it firsthand, I was like, wow, and I'm here. Like here's where I'm at with working with this amazing team of attorneys doing this right. work. So that is so important. Like how an, an attorney treats you, believe it or not, makes a huge difference because also too, that means they're gonna find ways to support you, whether you need housing, you know, employment, even just food to eat. So, you know, so to have that type of support, it's just, it's just so important for that person just coming out or being on, you know, being, you know, home from prison and everything. And, and not only just them supporting the individual, but also their families. Because like Catherine says, this ties in. Like it's yeah. not the one person, it's the whole family that, that suffers the consequences. And Catherine and Carmen, what I'm hearing both of you say is, is thinking about being an advocate in a mm -hmm. more broad way, not just being an advocate in court, but through more of the life cycle, through yes. re-entry uh, and beyond. Um, and that's, a, I think, a great and powerful uh, takeaway message uh, for, for our audience. Uh, Catherine and Carmen, thanks so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, before we wrap up, are there any parting thoughts or, or comments you didn't have the chance to address that you'd like to speak to? No, just, I mean, thank, you know, exactly what you said. I mean, thank you so much for your time and, and talking about this issue. And I think that what I would really recommend to any attorneys is like this dual approach that I really try to wrestle with. And I'm not perfect in any way, but like we have so much privilege as attorneys and especially for me as a white attorney. And I know, I'm very aware that like I was taught certain things, I passed the bar, so I have a skill, but I also have a lot of humility and need to listen because I grew up in a way 
that um, the outcome that I've had of going to law school and a great undergrad is like, that was almost destined for me, you know? And, and so while I have a lot of like hard skills I can bring to the work, I need to do a lot of listening to understand like the kind of ways that innovative and creative lawyering can happen. So we do as attorneys and advocates have a lot of ability to make change. And I would yeah. also incur encourage a lot of like listening and learning to ensure that any program that's designed to solve these issues is in fact based in what people need. And I think exactly what you just said, Jack, is like exactly what, um, what we're shooting for. And, you know, I want to thank you for um, having us. We've used Clio, I was saying, for the last, um, you know, for since the beginning, for our seven, seven years. And um, we've helped thousands of people and been able to kind of document all of these cases, which is critical to us in working with clients, but also being able to tell our story to philanthropists and um, funders and foundations like that, where we've been able to serve this person. I can bring up his case and tell his story. And so I really enjoyed that and, and the social justice aspect um, and the social good aspect that your your brand and your company bring to the space. And I'm, I'm very glad that we're working with you in, in these different capacities. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.